0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. It is a big day here on Obscure because we have finished what seems to have been the introduction to Frankenstein. Uh, at the time I was reading it, I didn't realize it was the introduction. It was Walton going on and on and on about his whole thing, and I didn't know like that was all going to be prelude to a kiss. The kiss, of course, being the tale of Frankenstein. But that's what happens when you don't know anything about the book that you're getting into. And to celebrate today, I decided to go full Leno. What's full Leno? Denim on denim. I'm wearing denim on denim. Denim pants, blue t-shirt, denim shirt. Because that is, for me, the height of literary fashion. Oh, but what about corduroy with patches on the sleeves? No, that's hack. I'm not hack. I'm a guy who wants to be comfortable when sitting on the Jack Jack Memorial reading couch and paging through a work of classic Georgian literature, Denim on Denim. Plus, it's autumn, you know what I mean? Autumn is denim on denim weather. The leaves are turning here in the wilds of Connecticut, parading from the trees in long lines, twirling like baton majors as they descend from the limbs of the trees. I think my camping days may be done for the season, and so now we are just in a position to be observing Fall's splendor. It is thematically linked to the book. How, Michael? I'll tell you. Last episode, what did we talk about? The dichotomy between beauty and horror. Fall is the ultimate exemplar of that tension from a tree's point of view. I mean, what's going on with trees? Their leaves, their decor. Their fingers, their solar receptacles are dying and falling to the ground, but at the same time creating immeasurable beauty. That's just the kind of shit you think about when you're contemplating the relationship between beauty and horror. I got to take a sip of tea. Oh, that's a nice English breakfast tea here on a chilly autumnal morning. So that's where we are. We are contemplating the relationship between beauty and horror. We are contemplating nature in all of her glory. And uh, nature itself is just the perfect combination of beauty and horror. Chapter one. After all this shit, we're on chapter one. Hey, Shakespeare. Why are we on chapter one? We've been reading for for seven episodes, Shakespeare. Okay, so the first thing that happens, I'm noticing here, is I already have a decision to make because it's in the first person. So you recall that Walton is recording what Frankenstein, he's just being court stenographer here, he's just writing down Frankenstein's words. So now I have a question because should I continue the poor Christoph Waltz accent I have been doing, or should I now switch back to Walton's voice, which is just my voice, to make it easier on you? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do like a little... uh, You're going to be amazed at what I do here, because it's going to be a trick of the mind. I'm going to start the first couple sentences in the voice of Frankenstein, a la Christoph Waltz, and then I'm going to smoothly, almost imperceptibly... Transfer to the voice of Walton so you're not burdened by my appalling accent work. Chapter 1. I am by birth a Genevese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years counselors and syndics. Oh, now I have to stop already, because syndic has a footnote. Syndic, syndics. All the dicks are syndics. That was a little um, sex-shaming right there. But it's not spelled like that. It's S-Y-N-D-I-C. Uh, Chapter 1. Chapter 1. Oh, there's a volume 2 I'm seeing because, there's, uh, because I'm looking at the footnotes. Um, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Chapter 1. Syndics. Government Magistrates of Geneva. No, oh, That's not that interesting. So, his parents, his ancestors were counselors and government magistrates of Geneva. So, already there's a surprise here. He's Genovese. Oh, <laughs> I'm such a moron. It's not a surprise. Genovese refers to Geneva. I was thinking it was like Genoa and he was Italian. And then I was going to have to change the whole accent. I am by birth a Genovese, uh, and my family is one of the most distinguished by the Republic. But no, it's Swiss. Syndics and my father had filled several public situations with honor and reputation. He was respected by all who knew him for his integrity and indefatigable attention to public business. He passed his younger days perpetually occupied by the affairs of his country. A variety of circumstances had prevented his marrying early, nor was it until the decline of life that he became a husband and the father of a family. Uh, So you noticed how just imperceptibly I shed the Christoph Waltz accent. You might be thinking, Michael, how did you become such a masterful thespian? And the answer is uh, by dropping out of NYU, by dropping out of NYU. Another sip of tea. Okay, I feel like I'm dawdling and I don't want to dawdle. I mean, we're getting into Frankenstein's story. As the circumstances of his marriage illustrate his character, I cannot refrain from elating them. One of his most intimate friends was a merchant who, from a flourishing state, fell through numerous mischances into poverty. This man, whose name was Beaufort, was of a proud and unbending disposition, and could not bear to live in poverty and oblivion in the same country where he had formerly been distinguished for his rank and magnificence. Having paid his debts, therefore, in the most honorable manner, he retreated with his daughter to the town of Lucerne, where he lived unknown and in wretchedness. Some might even say obscurity. Uh, You can't put the trumpet blare in there because I inserted the word, so it's not fair. It's not fair for me to inject the word obscure, but fuck it. I mean, trumpet (laughs) blare. He bitterly deplored the false pride which led his friend to a conduct so little worthy of the affection that united them he lost no time in endeavouring to seek him out with the hope of persuading him to begin the world again through his credit and assistance. Beaufort had taken effectual measures to conceal himself, and it was ten months before my father discovered his abode. Overjoyed at this discovery, he hastened to the house which was situated in a mean street near the Roos. But when he entered, misery and despair alone welcomed him. Beaufort had saved but a very small sum of money from the wreck of his fortunes, but it was sufficient to provide him with sustenance for some months, and in the meantime he hoped to procure some respectable employment in a merchant's house. The interval was consequently spent in inaction. His grief only became more deep and rankling, when he had leisure for reflection, and at length it took so fast hold of his mind that at the end of three months he lay on a bed of sickness incapable of any exertion. So we've started the book, or the Frankenstein story proper, with a long uh, detour about his friend's father Beaufort, who squandered his fortune, was ashamed, went to live off in the burbs, you know, with his his daughter, had a little money saved. He's like, all right, you know, I got a little money here. Let me get a job. But because he was so ashamed, he didn't do anything. He just sat on his ass and now he's exhausted laying on his couch and he's probably going to die. I mean, it's like a Jude the Obscurian uh, tale all over again, except with what appears to be a tertiary character to the story. I mean, he's not a primary character, he's not a secondary character, he is at best a tertiary character, so far as we know. Maybe Beaufort makes a triumphant return later on, I don't know. His daughter attended him with the greatest tenderness, but she saw with despair that their little fund was rapidly decreasing, and that there was no other prospect of support. But Caroline Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mold, mold and her courage "'rose to support her in her adversity. "'She procured plain work, she plaited straw, "'and by various means contrived to earn a pittance scarcely sufficient to support life. "'Several months passed in this manner. "'Her father grew worse. "'Her time was more entirely occupied in attending him. "'Her means of subsistence decreased, "'and in the tenth month, her father died in her arms.' "'leaving her an orphan and a beggar. "'This last blow overcame her, "'and she knelt by Beaufort's coffin, "'weeping bitterly when my father entered the chamber. "'He came like a protecting spirit to the poor girl "'who committed herself to his care, "'and after the internment of his friend, "'he conducted her to Geneva "'and placed her under the protection of a relation. Two years after this event,' Caroline became his wife gross can we just agree gross he married his friend's daughter and we're supposed to be like oh that's cool was that cool in late mid 1700s when Frankenstein presumably would have been born or early 1700s would that have been cool maybe I don't know but you know you read it with uh, you read it with a fella's eye of contemporary Uh, the contemporary fellows, I need to go, gross, like that. Um, So here's an interesting uh, footnote. It's fact, factoid. Caroline Beaufort, aside from Mrs. Saville, who really has no character in the introduction of the book, is really just a receptacle for the letters of Walton. Caroline Beaufort is our first female character, and she is described thus Let me go back for a moment. She is of uncommon mind, right? Uh, Caroline Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mold, and her courage rose to support her in her adversity. Caroline Beaufort of indeterminate age is our first, let's say, pronounced female character. I think that is worth noting. Now, Caroline Beaufort, I imagine, becomes Frankenstein's mother. We'll see. There was a considerable difference between the ages of my parents, but this circumstance seemed to unite them only closer in bonds of devoted affection. I don't know why that would be. If somebody's 35 years older than you and you marry them, why would that unite you in bonds of common affection? It seems like it would be annoying at best because you don't like the same television shows, right? Like if it's me, like I'm like, honey, let's go out, let's go listen to some reggaetron, because you know, that's what I do. And then my old biddy, my old wife is like, I'm too old for reggaetron. I'm like, but Bad Bunny. And she's like, I don't know who Bad Bunny is. You know, and you could see how that would create problems. I want, and I'd be like, I want to eat at, at, at she'd be like, I want to eat at 5.30. And I'd be like, I want to eat at 5.45 cause I'm young. And you could see how this would create problems. There was a sense of justice in my father's upright mind which rendered it necessary that he should approve highly to love strongly. Perhaps during former years he had suffered from the late-discovered unworthiness of one beloved, and so was disposed to set a greater value on tried worth. There was a show of gratitude and worship in his attachment to my mother, differing wholly from the doting fondness of age, for it was inspired by reverence for her virtues and a desire to be the means of, in some degree, recompensing her for the sorrows she had endured, but which gave inexpressible grace to his behavior to her. Everything was made to yield to her wishes and her convenience. He strove to shelter her, as a fair exotic is sheltered by the gardener from every rougher wind, and to surround her with all that could tend to excite pleasurable emotion in her soft and benevolent mind. Her health, and even the tranquility of her hitherto constant spirit, Had been shaken by what she had gone through. During the two years that had elapsed previous to their marriage, my father had gradually relinquished all his public functions, and immediately after their union, they sought the pleasant climate of Italy. Oh, so I wasn't so, so even though I was wrong about uh, Genoa versus Geneva, looks like they're going to Italy. Fun and the change of scene and interest attendant on a tour through that land of wonders as a restorative for her weakened frame. So we're getting a little bit of a dual portrait of Caroline Beaufort here. And Beaufort, of course, is a wonderful name for a Georgianologist like myself, because you can pronounce it with a southern accent, Caroline Beaufort of the Charleston Beauforts. Why, I've just come from South Carolina here to Georgia with my husband, Mr. Frankenstein. You remember him. He's the syndic of Geneva. You know, like that. Fun stuff. Um, But we're getting a little bit of a contradictory message here. Uh, We've gone from her having an uncommon, a mind of an uncommon mold to a soft and benevolent mind. Her health uh, had been shaken, yes. Yes and she now has a weakened frame. So the father, Papa Frankenstein, Papa Frank is much older, marries this much younger woman, and devotes himself in his old age to caring for her and tending her, it says, uh, as a fair exotic, is sheltered by the gardener. So just from a kind of gender perspective here, and you know, If you ever listen to my old podcast, Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, you know what I do is pick, eat, and rate snacks, but what I'm about is respect for women. So as somebody who is all about respect for women, I think we may start looking at this book a little bit through a gender perspective, and we have here a young woman writing about a young woman in... Uh, frail health and soft and benevolent mind who is being tended to as an exotic by a gardener. She is placing her Caroline Beaufort in the care of a much older, better situated man and is placing Caroline Beaufort as kind of the delicate flower to be protected. So, you know, these are conventions. These are literary conventions that you would expect from a, a male writer, certainly. Would you expect them from a female writer, even of the age? Hard to say. But there we are. We will return in just a jiffy on Obscure. All righty, let's get back to it. From Italy, they visited Germany and France. I, their eldest child, was born at Naples. So he he was born in Italy. Hey, I'm an Italian the baby. I'm a bambino. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And as an infant accompanied them in their rambles, I remained for several years their only child, much as they were attached to each other they seem to draw inexhaustible stores of affection from a very mine of love to bestow them upon me. My mother's tender caresses and my father's smile of benevolent pleasure while regarding me are my first recollections. I was their plaything and their idol and something better, their child, the innocent An helpless creature bestowed on them by heaven, whom to bring up to good, and whose fortune lot it was in their hands to direct to happiness or misery according as they fulfilled their duties towards me. With this deep consciousness of what they owed towards the being to which they have given life added to the active spirit of tenderness that animated both. It may be imagined that while during every hour of my infant life, I received a lesson of patience, of charity, and of self-control, I was so guided by a silken cord that all seemed but one train of enjoyment to me. Okay, that's a lot to uh, sort of get into our gullets, but let's understand for a moment. Understand, what the hell do I understand? let us let me bloviate for a second on again the nature of creation here you have two loving parents one old one young and they conceive this child innocent and helpless bestowed on them by heaven so again look look we're right back in the land of demons how you like them apples and It is in the power of the parents, right? Whom to bring up to good and whose future lot it was in their hands to direct to happiness or misery. So the parents, in a sense, take over the role of God from actual God once the baby is delivered from heaven. And he's saying, he, Frankenstein is saying the role of the parent is to direct the child towards happiness or misery it's a kind of proto Freudian view of the world that a child's well-being is incumbent upon the parents so I mean I don't know I look what do I know about what people thought about what a parent's role was in the mid 18th century I don't know But what I'm saying is, these words are certainly familiar to us today. You know, helicopter parenting and whatnot. And it sounds like he had helicopter parents. They were just hovering around him, bestowing on him benevolence, love, grace, a silken cord, he said, tethered to them. But he loved it, you know? He loved his folks. They loved him. Everything was happy-go-lucky. It was a perfect little... Uh, Troika, the three of them traipsing through Europe, learning different dialects, uh, eating sausages, eating crepes, doing whatever the hell they wanted to do. I was so guided by a silken cord that all seemed but one train of enjoyment to me. A happy childhood at long last, right? I mean, how long did we spend with Jude the Obscure and every miserable fucking thing that ever happened to him? And now we've got Frankenstein, you know, gallivanting going on yachts, partying with reality television stars, having a grand old time. For a long time, I was their only care. My mother had much desire to have a daughter, but I continued their single offspring. When I was about five years old, while making an excursion beyond the frontiers of Italy, they passed a week on the shores of the Lake of Como, well, Who lives on the Lake of Como now? George Clooney. Who would make an excellent Dr. Frankenstein? Again, George Clooney. Their benevolent disposition often made them enter the cottages of the poor. This, to my mother, was more than a duty. It was a necessity, a passion, remembering what she had suffered and how she had been relieved for her to act in her turn the guardian angel to the afflicted. During one of their walks, a poor cot in the foldings of a veil attracted their notice as being singularly disconsolate, while the number of half-clothed children gathered about it spoke of penury in its worst shape. One day, when my father had gone by himself to Milan, my mother, accompanied by me, visited this abode. She found a peasant and his wife, hardworking, bent down by care and labor, distributing a scanty meal to five hungry babes. Among these, there was one which attracted my mother far above all the rest. She appeared of a different stock. The four others were dark-haired, hardy little vagrants. This child was thin and very fair." Her hair was the brightest living gold, and despite the poverty of her clothing, seemed to set a crown. I think I, I mean, I know where this is going, right? You know where this is going. Seemed to set a crown of distinction on her head. Her brow was clear and ample, her blue eyes cloudless, and her lips and the molding of her face so expressive of sensibility and sweetness that none could behold her without looking on her as of a distinct species, a being heaven-sent and bearing a celestial stamp in all her features. Mama's going to buy herself a baby. Mama's just going to buy herself a beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed Aryan baby. I mean, the language of this is making me a little creeped out, a little bit, because it's like, hey, there's all these filthy peasants, right? And they're all poor and they're living in penury, as she says. They they barely have enough to eat. Here comes the white angel striding into the hut, looks at the one blonde baby among the filthy, dark-haired Italian paisan, and she's going to somehow get contrived to get this baby. I mean, you know, It's gross. It's creepy. I don't like it. Let's see how she gets the baby. The peasant woman, perceiving that my mother fixed eyes of wonder and admiration on this lovely girl, eagerly communicated her history. She was not her child, okay, but the daughter of a Milanese nobleman. Oh, come on. Come on. So this is how we get out of the guilt of baby snatching, that it wasn't even her kid. She's just this poor woman with four other kids took in the daughter of a Milanese nobleman. Come on, don't give me this bullshit. Hey, Shakespeare, don't give me this bullshit. What are you doing with the bullshit, Mary Shelley, giving me the bullshit? Her mother was a German and had died on giving her birth, the infant had been placed with these good people to nurse. They were better off then what? why would they give why would they give the baby to her? They had not been long married, and their eldest child oh, I see she's saying they were better off then the, the couple had had more money then they had not been long married, and their eldest child was but just born. The father of their char- charge was one of those Italians nursed in the memory of the antique glory of Italy, one among the Shiavi I probably didn't pronounce that correctly at all, but you know, any chance I get to do a ridiculous Italian accent, I'm going to take it. And by the way, there's a footnote. So obviously, let's read the footnotes. Schiave Agno Fremente Slaves. This is, the, this is what it says. Sciavni Agno Fremente Slaves always trembling. In context, the phrase return refers to the trembling of the Italian population while under Austrian rule during the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. So this would have been at that time. One among the Xavi Agno Fremente, who exerted himself to obtain the liberty of his country. So he was a rebel. He became the victim of its weakness. Whether he had died or still lingered in the dungeons of Austria was not known. His property was confiscated. His child became an orphan and a beggar. She continued with her foster parents and bloomed in their rude abode, fairer, then a garden rose among dark-leaved brambles. So she's calling the kids, the poor kids, brambles, but she's a rose? I mean, you know, this is, I guess, like, you know, typical, the literary fair, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about, like, noble blood and people who are born into nobility, they just look better, I guess, and they, you know, they're just like, they radiate some sort of nobility that... Us commoners don't. I mean, maybe they do. I've never met any royalty, so what do I know? Maybe they're all just like gods striding on the earth, although I doubt it because they're all hemophiliacs. When my father returned from Milan, he found playing with me in the hall of our villa a child fairer than a pictured cherub, a creature who seemed to shed radiance from her looks and whose form and motions were lighter than the chamois of the hills the apparition was soon explained. With his permission, my mother prevailed on her rustic guardians to yield their charge to her. They were fond of the sweet orphan. Her presence had seemed a blessing to them, but it would be unfair to keep her in poverty and want when providence afforded her such powerful protection. They consulted their village priest, and the result was that Elizabeth Lavenza became the inmate of my parents' house, my more-than-sister, the beautiful and adored companion of all my occupations and my pleasures. Everyone loved Elizabeth, the passionate and most reverential attachment with which all regarded her became, while I shared it, my pride and my delight. On the evening previous to her being brought to my home, my mother had said playfully, I have a pretty present for my victor. Tomorrow he shall have it. And when on the morrow she presented Elizabeth to me as her promised gift, I, with childish seriousness, interpreted her words literally and looked upon Elizabeth as mine, mine to protect, love, and cherish. All praises bestowed on her, I received as made to a possession of my own. We called each other familiarly by the name of cousin. No word, no expression could body forth the kind of relation in which she stood to me, my more than sister, since till death she was to be mine only. So she dead. Elizabeth dead. We don't know why. It's a good chapter ending, and that is in fact where the chapter ends. But we're seeing recurring themes here. We're seeing the idea of providence, destiny, heaven, nature, all intertwined. We're seeing Victor, Frankenstein's obsessiveness a little bit. The idea that he was controlling uh, Elizabeth. She was his gift. He took the words literally that mine to protect, love, and cherish all praises bestowed on her, I received as made to a possession of my own. So the idea of possessing another is not foreign to Victor Frankenstein. No, dare I say, we are going to see him attempt to possess another later in his life, for uh, 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 and upon whom he is going to want to lavish as a much older man to a younger woman as his father to his mother love praise care attention and he's going to want to assume whatever pride the creature receives as as his own possession as his own possession right so i guess we're setting up frankenstein's character here we're saying here's a guy who is doomed to repeat in a horrible way his own loved past He's trying to recreate the scenes of wonder and joy from his childhood. Proto-Freudian indeed. So we're set off now. Um, We have been on Walton's journey. We got up to the far edges of the North Pole. And now we have returned to the continent where we are on Frankenstein's journey. As we gallivant around, as we country hop from switzerland to italy to germany to france first as a single child and now as the cousin the familiarly as cousin as the more than sister um and more than brother frankenstein victor and elizabeth happy together till death do them part how will she die how will she expire How will this tragedy upend the lives of the Frankenstein family? We will find out on another bloviating episode of Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded... In places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedren. Join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at five dollars a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.